Welcome to the Fried Hartman Leadership Podcast from the Center for Excellence in Spiritual Leadership, the podcast dedicated to developing and encouraging spiritual leaders for the kingdom. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of the FHU Leadership Podcast. And in today's episode, I am privileged to have Dr. Doug Burleson with me. Doug, welcome. Hey, thank you, Josh. It's great to be with you. Well, Doug leads our lectureship uh, here at Fried Harmon. And Doug, I, you have to be feeling a little bit of relief with that being over here uh, in just a couple months ago. We are celebrating a great study of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther and thinking a lot about Revelation. So I'm feeling great, but not feeling great. Yeah. You know, no. Uh, studying such a great book, what a challenge, but what a blessing. Well, it, and it really never ends, does it? I mean, you, you're starting already thinking about 2024 at this point in the, in the spring. Yeah, we've got the program pretty much put together. We're working now on plugging in speakers. Um, we take about three weeks to send out surveys and just kind of clean up. But it's uh, to put out books and to be able to think ahead of time about advertising and uh, housing and travel arrangements. It's, uh, it's a year-round thing, but it's a blessing. Well, we're thankful for the good work you do with it and your wife and all that she does to help make that happen in the committee. Today, we're going to talk about a little different subject in our podcast for church leaders. We want to talk about 1 Timothy chapter 5, specifically verse 22, and, and, um, and dive into that passage and, and think about what lessons we can gain for uh, spiritual leadership from that. So, Doug, take us there, please. Hey, well, thank you, Josh. I think we all love 1 Timothy, and we talk a lot about chapter 3 when we consider the qualifications of elders, and we think a lot about what's going on in Paul's ministry and Timothy's service at Ephesus, but I think if there's a chapter in 1 Timothy that I've neglected and that maybe others have, it's chapter 5, because mm-hmm. you've got so much said about widows, and then you know, kind of go from caring for elderly widows to caring for elders in verse 17, and and, and then verse 22 falls right in the middle of that stretch where I think we're talking about how to take care of elders, how to appoint them, maybe how to pay them, how to treat them, uh, maybe how to discipline, verse 19, uh, how to avoid partiality. And then when you get to verse 22, you, you've got a couple of prohibitions there that are tied to how soon should we appoint these leaders. Um, two prohibitions, don't lay hands upon someone quickly don't share in the sins of a stranger. I think both of those statements are loaded and and why these things are being brought up. But uh, so contextually, I think we ought to pay as much attention to chapter 5, 17 and following as we do chapter 3 or Titus 1 when we're talking about qualifications. Because really these are things that how many elders get burned out? Mm-hmm. Or how many congregations get burned because maybe they weren't as thoughtful or careful or deliberate about making decisions or appointments that impact God's people for years to come. Yeah, in this context, we, we typically just think about chapter 3 and the qualifications. But here in chapter 5, he's talking about the same process of, qual- of appointing them and the process of how they are to be leading and ruling a church. And so you bring up a good point. I'm looking at the text, and he's talking about honoring them back in verse 17. He's talking about them being worthy of wages, verse 18. Um, he's talking about how do you handle when there's charges or, or problems with an elder amongst the church. And so there's a lot going on here in this passage about how the church is to be dealing with its shepherds, isn't it? Absolutely. And you've got Timothy, who I think by this point in his ministry has clearly been around a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there's a lesson there. Here's a guy who's still willing to take advice from his mentor, who's still in an important position as an evangelist, thinking about 
in a setting like Ephesus, where clearly there's been a lot of connections through the years. I mean, Paul's there for three years in Acts 19, mm -hmm. uh, being given advice not only on who qualifies, but how those people can be cared for, maintained, held accountable. This isn't uh, a position that's intended to last forever mm -hmm. if somebody no longer meets the requirements or isn't behaving in a way that honors God. And I'm afraid that sometimes we read into this context a model where instead of thinking about those three terms for elders that are used in the New Testament, episkopos, presbyteros, poimenos, overseers, elders, shepherds, we've got more of a CEO mentality mm -hmm. where until somebody comes along and, and fires this person, which I'm not sure where uh, outside of this context we see really a prescription for how that can happen. Mm -hmm. This is a position that you're in until you die or until you just move on. Uh, maybe it's healthier to think about how can we maintain, sort of check in on each other, yeah. care for one another, love and support these elders. Good elders need good sheep. Mm -hmm. you know, so how can I be a part of that? And elders need shepherding too. Absolutely. And they need to feel like they are not alone and they're not carrying this burden all alone. And so in some ways you have this idea of they need encouragement, they need to be uh, ministered to, and they need to be watched out for in their souls too. Yeah, and I don't see anything in Scripture about there being a head elder mm -hmm. or someone who has to always be the one who takes the lead. It seems that God's wisdom calls for a plurality of leaders who have strengths and weaknesses, who can rely on one another and their spouses. I mean, those familial requisites are there for a reason. Those spiritual maturity requisites are there for a reason. And uh, I, I'm just, I think there's a lot of burnout. I think there's a lot of frustration and, and it may be the particular eldership leans more towards the overseeing responsibility than the shepherding mm -hmm. responsibility. I think it was uh, F. Lagarde Smith in his book on radical restoration a few years ago who basically said part of our challenge has been preachers sometimes do the work of elders. Elders are doing the work that deacons could do, and deacons don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's fair uh, in every situation, but I've seen it in a lot of situations. And uh, that employer-employee model where uh, we get together once a week to ask the preacher what's being done is, uh, is a dangerous path to go down. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and so as we're thinking about these, you really, you're making me think, Doug, that really we should have done a series here. And, and as we look at the context, there is so much there from verse 17 on of, of principles for church leadership, principles for elders. But um, since I did kind of ask you to target on verse 22, and so he's, he's talking about really in verse 22 how to avoid the, the negative things of the earlier verses, isn't it? So like if you don't want to have to bring a charges against elders with two or three witnesses to bring these charges to, to rebuke them in the presence of all, which, by the way, can you imagine that situation in church today? I mean, getting the whole church together and saying we're going to rebuke one or two elders. Have you ever known that? I think you definitely turn off the live stream uh, before that. <laughs> you know, visitors, you can go ahead and go. Um, no, I, I, and I think there are probably several reasons for that. Yeah. Um, culturally, we've kind of lost the ability to shame. And I, I don't want to be compassionate in yes. how I say that. But, um, and, but I think there's an example there. The disciplinary picture of how a healthy congregation can function is not just about members. Uh, how did John handle Diotrephes? Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems to be pretty direct, although we don't know a lot about his role. He clearly had some level of authority, and compared to Demetrius and Gaius and the other people that John commends, uh, there's quite a contrast. So 
it seems that contextually, verse 22, if you go back to 3.6 and the requisite that elders not be novices, Mm -hmm. then perhaps some of this is assumed that you're not going to lay your hands on. And there's a whole question there about, right, is that a play on words given that Paul describes how he had laid hands on Timothy, but maybe more importantly, how the elders had laid hands on. I think that's probably symbolic and a way of just commissioning. So Mm -hmm. uh, is the language here, uh, I think what's implied is you don't put somebody in a position of leadership quickly. Um, You know, you allow some tests to be in place. They're not a novice. Uh, And especially in the context of what precedes this regarding trespasses. Uh, I think this is maybe sort of a double entendre. It applies to those who are put in a position for the first time. But it could also be back in verse 21, as you pointed out, uh, connected to those who have uh, committed a trespass. And so how am I going to know that this person is ready to serve? It's sort of like, I think, what some congregations have done. How do we keep young families here? Well, as soon as they have a child, let's make him a deacon. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be what First Timothy 3 is calling us to do. And so as soon as I remember one time we were at camp, and it was here at Freed Hartman, so Horizons, and a young man was baptized that we had all been praying for and working with. And it was like a month later that the congregation started talking about wanting to put his dad in as an elder. He was a great man, mm-hmm. but it was almost like, well, now that he's baptized, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And I think Paul's saying, you know, there, there may be a need for a little bit more time to pass. And how much time? Well, that's a great question. I think it just depends on a person's context. Great description of, the, of what's going on here. So when you think about this, what dangers... What dangers are Paul is Paul talking about that can come by appointing a man too early? And what dangers have we seen in our experience of appointing a man too hastily, too early? Because that's the expression, right? Do, I do not hastily do this. So what, what does that mean, and, and what dangers can come by doing this too quickly? Well, let me talk about it, first of all, from the perspective of the person who's being considered for mm-hmm. a position like that. I think a lot of us have learned that the desire for a position is often very different from being in that position. Mm-hmm. Amen. You know, so the desire to be an elder is a great thing. That's a requisite. But I think you could talk to a lot of men who now are serving as elders, and they would probably say, you know, it's a blessing and an honor, and I want to glorify God in this role, but I had no idea what I was getting into. And so I think you've got, it's just natural, men who are ambitious, who have succeeded in business, who have that's the next step. Maybe they've served faithfully as an evangelist or a deacon, or they've uh, had success in a particular ministry. And so for them, the natural step is, I'm ready to serve. And, and I think maybe a time of testing where, you know, maybe the elders say, we want to be intentional about seeing how we can help you be readied for that. We want to, with discretion, allow you to get to know a little bit more about what this job is really like, uh, where you may not hear from people unless it's, it might not be praise. It's going to be concerns. It's going to be a burden that maybe you haven't thought about. So from the perspective of the person being considered, I think it's helpful to them to know, hey, it, it's not that you're striving for glory, but there is this, oh, he's one of the elders, mm-hmm. ways of describing that that I think could blind people to the reality of what it's really like to get your hands dirty in ministry you know, trying to rescue sheep. And then from the perspective of the elders, I think 
there's this desire to have help. Yeah. I mean, we need more people in this room praying and out there visiting and helping us, especially if you've only got a couple of guys. That's always, there's more pressure, right, than if you're in a large setting that a lot of us are blessed to be in where you've got eight or nine guys. And so um, there's, a, there's a desire to sort of rush that, it, you know. A couple stories there, Doug, that came to my mind as I was listening to you talk. One is I remember an, an elder one time who was telling me this story he said I had been a preacher or I had been at the congregation and he said I was really close friends with one of the elders and he said we would often have conversations and I would always be talking about they you know why did y'all do why did you do this and um, talking about them as a group and, and then it became time where he was going to be appointed as an elder and that friend who'd been an elder for a long time said to him I want you to know something it's no longer they and them it's we and us and it's going to be a big change. And, and I think that's very significant. You learn a lot more the ideas that you never thought, you know, that it would be like this, the experiences and the, the burden, the stress. It's a lot easier to talk about they and them than it is to talk about we and us, and we're the ones who are doing this, and this is my responsibility. second story that, that came to my mind as I listened to you talk is, is a story from Stephen Ambrose and um, D-Day and talking about all the recruits that were coming in. Of course, the um, infantry was going across Normandy, and but they got where they didn't even want to know the new recruits because they would often die or be injured so quickly because they did not have the experience. And so many times they would rush them through boot camp, and they would try to, because there was such a, a need for new men, they were just rushing them onto the front lines, but they didn't have any experience. And so the old hardened soldiers would sometimes not even want to befriend the younger guys and give them the training or experience needed, number one, because they were dangerous for them because they didn't have the experience, but number two, because emotionally they would often lose them so quickly because they didn't have that. And I think sometimes we're like that in the church. It's like two guys or no elders or we need deacons. And so we want to rush guys in because we feel this need to get them in there, but we also often harm them or harm others through that process. Yeah, imagine if those soldiers storming Normandy were bringing their families with them. Yeah. And I know that elders, I mean, their wives and their children are not shepherding the flock, but their personalities and behaviors and character are very much a part of that picture. So Steve Farrar in his book, The Point Man, which blessed me as a college student, mm -hmm. and I've read it like seven times since then, starts with that image of being in the jungles of Vietnam and your and your family is with you. How differently do you lead, you know, knowing that they're there? And so I just think, you know, what an opportunity in terms of not quickly laying hands on someone, letting his wife, letting his children, and that's a big discussion, right? Whether they're young or out of the home, I think they're still his children. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, how's this going to change? We hopefully are still going to live lives that are of character. That's part of what allows him to serve in that role to start with, but um, it's hard to blame the elders when you're one of them. Oh, yeah. And that's that's easy. Uh, those elders, well, now, like you said, you're part of that group. And I think, too, the age of a, of a man, he really needs to think about this because if he has children at home, it's going to really affect them and put a more pressure upon them when they're in the youth group, things of that nature, maybe expectations upon them that often may be better for them not to have until they're older and maybe then he has and of course there's 
so many activities, extracurricular activity with children. Raising teenagers is a great challenge. And so sometimes a man may decide or a church may decide, we need to wait. This man is preparing, but he's not at the stage of life now where he can fully dedicate or maybe the best time for his family. And so later on, someone can then step in after those children have graduated and maybe then be able to serve in a better capacity. Um, just you got to consider those things. That's right. There's a lot of variables. And most of our congregations, you know, an elder and his family are there, even if his children are grown. Uh, maybe his children are there, grandchildren are there. I knew of a situation in a place I served where uh, there was an elder there who had been appointed too quickly. There was actually another member he had not spoken to in the congregation for several years. Something happened. He got upset. He left, and three other families left because they were all connected to him. Should have never happened. And I think had we been able to pump the brakes a little bit, I know that there's a need, something's on fire, we want to appoint this guy. But as we sometimes say, the only thing worse than not having elders is having guys in there that aren't really qualified to be elders. And so uh, not that I'm in a position to tell an eldership what to do, but I think a part of this would involve some really intentional conversations, Mm -hmm. maybe even involving more than just the eldership. But questions like, uh, have you thought about in your role as an elder what you'd like to see change? Mm -hmm. Because I think there are some people who would crave that position because maybe they have an agenda that's not God-honoring. How many times do we see that happen with evangelists who, you know, Jerry Barber talks a lot about when there's an eldership change, he resigns and reapplies. I've never had the faith to do that, you know. (laughs) It may be the chance for them to say, finally, you know. Uh, But I get it because if somebody comes in and they don't care for the preacher or they don't care for another elder, and again, if it's right, it's right, but... Um, not laying hands on them too quickly could bless the whole body. Uh, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about stories involving that. Yeah, certainly. So so some of the dangers here is is, is really what Paul seems to be saying is you can avoid problems, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm working with someone this morning about uh, preparing premarital counseling. And really the whole point of premarital counseling is you're trying to avoid problems. And so by doing some safeguards, you're talking about interviews, you're talking about making sure you um, talk to him about his stage in life. Maybe can really considering the harmony with the other elders. Uh, would you would you speak to that idea, or some maybe some other ideas that you might want to consider um, as you're thinking about appointing a man? You know, I know a lot of elders, elderships are really intentional about spending time together outside of a, a conference room, and uh, maybe getting together, going out to eat, or visiting in one of those homes. I think. That dynamic of that elder and his wife in particular are important. I think the wife in particular plays a really important role with regard to her ability to not only be a support to her husband, but uh, to build up the body and not be uh, a busybody, not be a gossip. Likely, as she and her husband pray together, she may know about some things that most of the body don't know about. Uh, That can be with social media. I mean, how you say things and what you say and how you treat people, especially when you're married to someone that people are sometimes not going to like. Mm-hmm. How are you going to respond when there's a person or a group of people who are really mad at the elders? You know, I think those are big questions. So uh, in, in many ways, it's it's almost like welcoming a preacher. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you want to spend time together. You want to do some, some background checks, not that that's going to cover everything. You're going to want to ask some doctrinal questions since this is somebody that's going to be apt to teach and 
shepherding the flock, including the preacher. It would be embarrassing for uh, the elders to have to ask the preacher, you know, constantly about what the Bible says. Um, so it's it's not just about how well you harmonize with this person, but are they really going to be a leader or are we in a situation? And I think in rural settings, this is sometimes true where, hey, this guy, he's been a Christian a long time. His kids are faithful. He's been successful in business. He must be a good elder. And this is a text that says, uh, no. I mean, in addition to the requisites, he's living a life that's worthy of double honor, but he can be confronted if in sin. Um, how many congregations right now are being held hostage by a, an elder who nobody knows how to talk to? Yeah. Maybe even the other elders don't know how to confront this person. And that Satan loves that. He loves it. And Paul's addressing it. The Spirit of God through Paul is saying, here's how you handle it. But it requires on the front end, and unless somebody just pulls the Trojan horse method and they don't really let you know who they are, these are ways with not quickly grabbing somebody, not being pulled down by that lowest common denominator. Um, you know, we're not going to find the perfect man, but we can find godly men. Yeah. God's plan works. And you can make, you can go back to that uh, desire. What is the motive? And you've mm -hmm. kind of alluded to that a few times. What is the motive and why you're wanting this office? And making sure our motives are pure and making sure that, uh, <clears throat> that you know the man you're appointing you know his past, and you know his desires for the future, and is his heart in the work uh, for the church. So we've talked about this with, with the role of the elder, because I believe that's contextually what Paul is saying. We talked about some of the dangers that can come in that. Uh, before we move on from elders and talk about maybe with deacons and, and ministers and things, what, are there any other dangers that you think can come when we don't do this that we've seen? Um, I guess, what's some of the worst-case scenarios when we fail to do this? Well, I think we've been in First Timothy quite a bit. Mm -hmm. When you flip over to Titus and see what he says about managing his own household, I know contextually that's a uh, that's sort of an open discussion in many settings. But uh, how does this man? Okay, nepotism is a real challenge, mm -hmm. and so how does this leader? Let's say that, and again, this is hypothetical. I don't have any particular situation in mind. He has adult children that are members of this congregation. Maybe they're deacons. Maybe they're fellow elders. Um, how does he handle that dynamic? Does he hold his own children to the same standard that he wants to hold other members to? Or is this one of those situations where um, because this is a person in power, he may look the other way with his own family? And that, that kind of dynamic, I think, is common. Mm -hmm. And I was in a setting where uh, I love this church, but we we supported one missionary in a foreign field. He was an elder's son. The secretary was an elder's wife. The janitor was an elder in his family. The deacon over office staff and finance was an elder's son. An elder mowed the grass. Um, I mean, everything we did involved an elder's family, and that was fine, but it was really hard to hold each other accountable because there was so much nepotism. Yeah. And I know in a lot of our settings, you've got family involved in things, but I think if you put guys that are craving power and maybe not always thinking about, not, not always being able to see beyond their own egos mm -hmm. with those family dynamics, most challenges I think come from those two places. And how much of that could be solved by 
saying, hey, this, this is a great man, but uh, his wife's a gossip. Mm-hmm. His children are divisive, and there's just a problem. And even though it would be great, now it's going to be awkward. I mean, I think another thing we've got to do is communicate with people who are not appointed and say, listen, we love you, but these are some things that we've got to work on, that you've got to work on, and just be upfront. I know we don't want to see anybody get upset and leave, but uh, I would rather have that conversation than somebody be put in a position where they can make the life of that local body really miserable and uh, even affect whether that candlestick's still there. And hinder the churches going forward and also maybe split the church or cause great harm to the church in the future. Maybe split the eldership. Um, if you don't have a man that's harmonious with the other elders, there's a lot of things to consider there. So when we think about uh, the eldership, we'll still kind of maybe talk about that some more, but let's, let's go to deacons. So what danger can come? You mentioned, you know, sometimes it's like, well, let's keep this young family, so let's appoint them as a deacon. I, I've known of sometimes where a man, his family aren't involved on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. So I tell you what, let's do, let's make them a deacon so they'll get more involved. Um, or let's give them a work, and so that way they'll have something to do so we'll see them. Um, or maybe it's just they have the status. Uh, we know that. I mean, they're, they're good-looking, they're involved, they're, they're socially and business-wise very successful. And so we think this man needs to be a deacon. Uh, so we put him in. So what are some things that, what are some dangers we see in that, and what are some other areas maybe where we've seen that happen, and, and what's Paul cautioning us about here? Yeah, well, being a deacon is not a stepping stone to being an elder, yeah. right? I mean, not everybody who serves as a deacon are going to have children that grow up to be believing children or are going to have the kind of blameless reputation or uh, spiritual prowess, you know, to serve in that role. I think another uh, challenge to consider here is that every time, when I was appointed a deacon at Estes, uh, working with local evangelism, Alan Walker, who was one of the elders at the time, uh, I think everybody he met with, we read through those requirements and he would ask directly with each line and the other elders were in the room do you feel that you meet this requirement I mean it's a very sobering humbling reality and then when you stand before the congregation I mean those are things that I think could appeal to people's thirst for power but I think one of the things that makes the role of a deacon different is that it's a time to serve and so if there's a job in the local congregation that could be assigned to a deacon great if there's not a job, I don't know why we have to have a deacon, mm-hmm. period. It's not a deaconship. That's right. It's not, a, it's not so much about the office. No. It's, and not, it's not about the title, the It's about the, the service. It's about the service. It's about we, deacons are to help the elders right. carry out their function better so that they don't have to do those jobs and the body can function better as a whole. And so if you have a job for someone, then appoint a man who has talent and ability to do that job. Yeah, and help him to see that hey, one day you may be an elder, but this is, uh, I mean, most of us work in careers that just because you serve in a role doesn't mean you're necessarily going to take a step up the ladder, learn to be content with where you're serving and honor God in that role. And and don't assume that because, you know, the elders may not meet with you as often as you want or your budgetary concern, but communication and trust and just desiring to do the right thing, I think also the fact that Paul talks about the wives of deacons, there's a whole verse dedicated to that. What is it? First Timothy 3, 17. Uh, that's, a, that's another domestic requisite. So, Christina, this is something we prayed about and talked about quite a bit. Um, 
although it's a different thing. Like I don't see deacons carrying with them the kind of authority. I don't think that's the right verse. Uh, uh, you, verse, uh, yeah, verse 11, 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. Women or wives must be mm-hmm. dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things, which I would assume also applies to elders' wives, but it's contextually the wives of deacons yeah. that we're talking about here. So those are some dangers. And then you're probably going to have children that are younger. They're not going to necessarily have to be baptized um, at that point. But I think a man needs to know, hey, this is a this is a working position. And... Um, it may be that you serve in this capacity for three or four years, and then you're given another job to do. But I don't see this as being... I view this as another ministry. Yeah. And like those Grecian widows, I don't... Luke doesn't use the word deacons in Acts 6 and 7, but it seems to be a kind of a proto-deacon thing that's being discussed there. So, What about, uh, Doug, as we close this out, let's, let's go one step further. Let's talk about um, hiring ministers. Of course, we're in the business of, of training ministers, um, how have we seen this hurtful to ministers when they are hastily hired or when they're not supervised or guided in this? And so as church leaders here are listening to this podcast and they're thinking about, all right, we need to hire a youth minister, we need to hire a preacher. And sometimes there's that pressure, pressure of, all right, we've got to have someone preaching this Sunday or we're, we're going to falter as a church if we don't get someone in, in our pulpit. So what, would, what counsel would we give them about not hastily rushing that decision, and what dangers have we seen come from that? Oh, man, how many hours do we have? <laughs> do we need a separate podcast oh, on that one? Well, we might need a week-long series. No, I, I mean, I get the pressure because um, we're in a setting where I think people assume professional ministers are the answer. Yes. Which is part of the problem. And, like, the church is not at level A if you don't have one. That's right. And like we're, we're missing and we're going to start falling off. And there's some truth to that idea. Maybe. I mean. In, in the sense that culturally, I think there's some truth right. to that idea. Especially urban, large congregations. That's, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where we are. But it yeah. kind of goes back to what I said earlier about if elders are shepherding the flock and deacons are doing that work, it might be less pressure yeah. when you're looking. Yes. Which turns the temperature down quite a bit. So. I think we just got to accept the reality. We have to accept the reality that there are going to be some people looking for ministry positions because they've not been effective elsewhere. That's not always true, but you've got some people that you need to do. You need to ask some very direct questions of him and his spouse if he's married. Uh, you need to check, do some background checks, check social media. Uh, even if they haven't given you references, I would talk to everywhere they've ever been. Amen to that. I, I'm always amazed by that, Doug. Oh, and I'm amazed that guys go to new jobs and never contact the last place they worked. And and I know that there's probably like an unspoken, the nice thing to do is to say, he's a great young man. Yeah. But be honest. If this guy calls trouble where you were, and again, elders can see through if they're discerning what's just personal vendetta versus somebody that's just not honorable in the way that they conduct themselves. Ask lots of questions. Go beyond their references. Um, and, you know, I don't want to steal sheep, but it might be that the best person for you isn't looking. Mm-hmm. And um, it's exhausting. You know, there's not a third Timothy that tells us exactly what that process has to look like. I think a lot of leaders are probably going to be surprised by um, how difficult it is to find the, the right person Um 
cost of living has increased. It's amazing what sometimes people expect in terms of pay and yeah. benefits. It's certainly different than it was when we started out. But um, if you rush it, with rare exception, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. And um, I've just seen this absolutely destroy congregations. I think we also have to be really careful about how we interview guys. I don't know that the best way is to have parade six guys through to try out because what happens is the first guy that they hire, you know, the congregation may be looking and saying, well, we really like that first, we really like the other guy mm-hmm. that they brought in. He was much more dynamic. I, I, so I'm not saying there's one way to do this, but I know when we were trying out in Baton Rouge um, several years ago, we met with four or five different groups of people that were able to ask questions. They met with Christy individually. They met with me. And that was a long time ago, but it was, I think, because they had had some experiences they didn't want to have again. Yeah. And um, and I think preachers, on a side note, need to learn to ask questions too. Yeah. You know, why are you looking? What, what about the last guy? Um, and, and it may be that sometimes if it's an eldership where they are, they're having trouble dealing with an inter-eldership issue like a dominant person. Uh, I hope that preacher finds out before he gets there, yeah. if possible. You know, something we haven't talked about that we don't often think about is uh, actually using some professional testing, um, whether it's Myers-Briggs. Uh, there's Patrick Lencioni has one on the Working Genius, which really helps you understand people, and it's only $25. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to do but you really understand where, where someone's skill set is. Of course, there's other talents, other type personality tests, working tests out there that don't cost very much, the disc analysis, different ones. And, and we may say, well, that's, that seems a little far-fetched. But really, if you're putting a man into the eldership or you're, you're putting, hiring a minister, would you not want to know his skill set? You know, where he's talented at, what, how he's kind of made up, how he's geared. So that way you can then know how to use him. For example, if a man is a very introverted man and you're hiring him expecting him to spend 20 plus hours a week out in the community visiting and making all the visits, he's probably not going to be the guy for you. No. Now, if you're wanting, if you're needing very strong sermons and you're needing him to teach two Bible classes a week and two sermons a week and you need him to spend 30 hours in the week doing a lot of study and just mainly make a a few key visits, he's probably the man for you. If you want him to do a lot of writing, study, preaching. But you need to know what kind of talent you're getting because you can't expect that man to be great at visiting if that's not his if that's not his talent set. And I think it goes both ways. Now he can he can do he needs to do the job as expected, but you also need to know his strengths and his weaknesses. Because we've all got strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And and maybe that's also a part in a larger congregation of how you build the rest of the staff. Yeah. Around I mean, that. If you've got an associate who's already a on fire extrovert and he's gonna be out in the community you know, it's like that. I've often wondered what that old VBS song, Deep and Wide, is all about. Yeah. Especially when you get to the mm and mm part, you know, at the end. But maybe it's a metaphor for how we think about ministry. There's some guys that are deep in the word and they're going to have depth. And, and But then there are some people that love people and they're going to be great servants. And I think every congregation is looking for that perfect combination of deep and wide. You're probably not going to find that. But if you can build, if you know what the strengths of your eldership are or your staff or maybe the congregation there, that a vision, maybe even a job description mm-hmm. that allows everybody to kind of go in knowing they're on the same page and 
And just patience. I mean, again, <laughs> to wear this out, the, the what's worse than not having a preacher is having a guy that is going to destroy your congregation. And you've got to protect the flock. I don't think that's just about keeping the wolves out that are out there in the community. It's about not bringing in somebody that's got an agenda or it's really hot-headed or, you know, he's been fired four times in the last two years. You might want to think about yeah. why. Yeah. Talk to those guys. You pa- know? Patience and communication. Patience. Yeah. yeah. So, and we're thinking about two young guys, and I would say also when you hire a guy, and, of course, we believe in our guys that we're training and we, we, we want to do the best, but we also are very humble and say that, they're not where they need to fully be either because they've got to get experience. And so guys that start out 22 or young, years of age, younger, or even 23, 24, start out in a youth ministry or preaching position, elders should not just hire them. And, and if, if you will give him the entire responsibility without holding him accountable, without supervising, without giving him a job description, they need to know what you expect out of them. And they need to have mentoring and guidance along the way. And sometimes I think we, we, we hire a guy and we think, well, they've been trained at Free Dharma, they've been trained at a preaching school, and then we step back, and then when it when they don't do that, what we expect them to do, that we haven't told them we expect them to do, then we get upset and then we dismiss them. And and we need to make sure there's good communication all throughout and give that mentoring, guidance, supervision, just like if, you, if, if a factory hired a new guy coming out of college, they're going to give them training. They're going to give them supervision throughout the whole process. I think I think that will also help in this fulfilling this verse of don't hire someone hastily, you know, guide them along the way. It doesn't happen by accident. I no. mean, you have to be intentional about building relationships. One of the things I love about Estes is when Mark and I meet with the elders once a month, they start by asking how we're doing. Pray for us. Mention our families. It's not, I mean, are we employees? Yes, but we're sheep that they're shepherding and they're concerned about. And you know, what are the expectations not only for us, but for our wives? Because in a lot of places, I've even heard it said, we're going to hire one minister, but really get two. Yeah. And and so what are those expectations? And and even among staff, you know, what happens when one of our young graduates gets hired and he's, he's at a place where there's an older preacher who maybe already is feeling a bit threatened because uh, he's nearing retirement and now there's this 25-year-old kid who's coming here, and there's a lot of people who like him, and that can really cause dissension. So I think communication and trust and uh, involvement in the daily lives of the whole team and just understanding that, um, you know, hopefully we're all trying to glorify God in this. And I may have a 25-year-old who's a better preacher than I am, and I'm in my 50s or 60s. That's okay. God can still use us in this setting that will hopefully build up the borders of his kingdom and allow people to be encouraged. I think that begins and ends with an eldership yeah. that's intentional about seeing it and knowing it. And uh, we, we see it done well in lots of places, but I'm afraid we also see a lot of division and heartache that comes about because we just assume that would happen naturally. It yeah. doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great takeaway, Doug. As we, as we close this out, we're, we've gone a little longer than we typically go, but it's been great discussion. Um, what, um, what final thoughts would you have to kind of wrap any of this up or anything that you've wanted to say you haven't been able to say? I believe the Lord's plan for his church works. It's a great, perfect plan. I know that our world proposes all kinds of other models, and we sometimes get frustrated 
And I just know um, that there are a lot of preachers and elders who are who are tired, who are frustrated, who hear something like what we've been discussing and say, you know, it's easy for you to say you're sitting there at Freed Hardeman. Mm-hmm. You know, we're out here and uh, we're not in the Bible Belt. You know, we're struggling to even find a preacher. Uh, we don't have anybody that's qualified to serve as an elder. And I would just encourage you not to give up, not to feel like you're alone. I think about Elijah and his frustration, you know, being reminded of, what, 7,000 other people that had not bowed the knee to Baal. And uh, God's plan works. We can't we can't quit just because we've seen people maybe mistreat that plan or neglect or abuse that plan. So if you're discouraged, um, you know, you're not alone. God's faithful. And uh, I, I'm... I think, Josh, you would agree, we've, we've both been in ministry a while, that I love serving at Freed Hardeman, and I love all the other things we get to be involved in, but the the work of God's people begins and ends in the local congregation, Amen. Mm-hmm. and they're on the front lines of this, and our job here is to support the good things that are happening in these congregations, and so, you know, keep in there, stay in the fight, to God be the glory. Amen. Amen. Great way to end, Doug. I, I appreciate you coming on and this good discussion and the, just the the heart for love for the church and love for leaders in the church. And we need you, and we're thankful for the service and work you're doing. Uh, let me encourage you to rate our podcast. Let me encourage you to share it with others on social media or also just mouth-to-mouth uh, with others. We appreciate uh, you listening and look forward to being with you next time on our FHU Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fried Harmon Leadership Podcast. For more great content and to see the services the Center for Excellence in Spiritual Leadership offers your local congregation, please visit www.supportingspiritualleadership.com. Until next time, remember, God uses ordinary people to lead his people into extraordinary feats. <laughs>